You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hi everybody and welcome to Her Dad What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me your host, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books. It's been a week, it has been a week. Everyone I know, everyone across in Scotland, in England, the Netherlands... They're dealing with baking, hot, roasting heat waves. In Ireland, for the most part, where I live, we've had rain. We had one day of heat, right? And I was supposed to take my wee girl to this Disney soccer thing with the UEFA something or other, but it got cancelled because they were like, haha, it's supposed to be 29 degrees Celsius, so we feel like that frying a bunch of four to seven year olds is probably not a good idea. So obviously it gets cancelled and then I was off you know a good few days during the week I was like yay I'll get to enjoy some of this beautiful heat wave and sunshine and stuff and it rained it rained so it's actually really hot today and I can't put the fan on I have a big standalone fan I'm fairly certain it was made in the 90s maybe the 80s it's very old but it works very well so I haven't been able to turn it on because when you, you you really hear it, so if I had it on, it would just be through the whole process. Um, and you're welcome for that impression of a fan. But yeah, there's been like a massive heat wave. But also, what I've noticed a lot, because obviously I, I live on the internet, is that a lot of people who live in sort of warmer climates and, you know, hotter countries, that they're just like, well... It's so hot all the time here. We don't know how you can't handle it. We deal with it all the time. And it's like, yeah, because your infrastructure was built to deal with heat. Whereas if you're in somewhere like London, all of the homes are designed to trap heat. Like that's it. Like my house where I live in the middle of nowhere, our walls are insulated and they're like double layered and everything is designed to stop you freezing to death. So like in loads of major cities, because of the way everything's designed, and a lot of it was built like by the fucking Victorians, that they just don't have the capacity to deal with this level of, of heat. So lots of people are either just working from home, either by necessity or by choice. I mean, that's really only the two options you have, isn't it? But that's not the point. So yeah, today's hot. I'm sitting in a, a night shirt. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm currently sitting in a Chippendales nightshirt recording this because it's too hot to wear anything else. Oh, one more thing actually. I decided to Google myself, as one does. Um, I, I couldn't sleep one night. It was one of the nights where it was hot, so I was like, I'll have a wee, have a wee nosy. And so there's a, there's a few Katie Charlewoods out there. There's a couple of us, right? And I was scrolling down, and then I saw that I was on comedy.co.uk. I was like, what's this? It's like I'm officially listed um, from when I did Louisa O'Malan's show. Like, there's no photo or anything, it's just a sweet thing, and then it's like, Katie Charlewood is an academic. And I was like, oh, that's fine, I'll take it. That's nice. But like seeing it there in writing, there's something incredibly validating about it, especially when it's on something so official. But anyway, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber jabber and fact me. In fact, you, I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are Lady Jane Grey, A Tudor Mystery by Eric Ives, Crown of Blood, The Deadly Inheritance of Lady Jane Grey by Nicola Tallis, Monarchs of the Renaissance by Philip J. Potter, and of course we have our favourites, history.com, historyextra.co.uk, and the Smithsonian.com. So, are you sitting comfortably? Good, then let's begin. So today's episode, I'm sure you have guessed by the title, is about Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. Now, I was first introduced to the concept of Lady Jane Grey, not via the history books, as one might assume, but through a video game called Fable 2. I'm fairly certain it was Fable 2. I think it was the ghost, the grey ghost, or something to that effect. But in this game, she was seen as this absolute bitch. I just, I remember having that sort of vibe off of it. It's been a while since I played it. I actually might play it again just to, just for that. But you know me and my opinion of women in video games, especially historical women in video games, because they tend to be displayed poorly. So, because I think I was looking up something about it, and as such, I learned about Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. But like the way she's portrayed in sort of modern media is she's either like an absolute bitch, or she's this meek little martyr. And the truth is like, you know, as per usual, somewhere in the middle. So without further ado, let's talk about Lady. Lady Jane Grey was born somewhere between May 1536 and February 1537. Possibly in London, possibly at Bradgate Park in Leicestershire. Because she's a woman from the past, so why the fuck would we have that information? Where was she born? Here, kinda. Right, when was she born? Roughly between this year and that year. Cool. I mean, that being said, we do actually have more information on her birthday than we do about Anne Boleyn. So, I mean, that's, that's something, right? Lady Jane Grey was the daughter of Henry Grey, the first Duke of Suffolk, and Lady Frances Brandon, whose mother Mary was Henry VIII's sister. So Lady Jane Grey, she's the eldest daughter. So Jane, like Mary Queen of Scots, is a direct descendant from Henry VII. So she's still got, you know, proper lineage. You know what I mean? It's really funny, like, when you think about the names of the Greys. So, so Jane is the oldest Grey. And then you've got Catherine, and then you have Mary. So Jane was probably named after Jane Seymour because of when she was born. 
and Catherine, one of those respect the crown sort of things, was probably either a Catherine Howard or Catherine Parr scenario. And then Mary was probably a Lady Mary scenario. You know, one of those. Naturally, the Greys, they wanted a son and heir, but because Jane was a descendant of Henry VII, she had Tudor blood, which did make her incredibly important, especially as their oldest child. Because if you can't carry the name, you better be fucking useful. But don't worry, just because she didn't have all the wiggly boy parts doesn't mean that she couldn't still be useful to them. Because of course, Jane is of good Tudor stock. Luckily for them, Prince Edward was born and they thought, wow, he's a boy, she's a girl, can we make it any more obvious? And as such, they're like, okay, let's get these two hitched. And in a move that surprises absolutely no one, they start plotting for Edward to marry Jane. In fairness, because her dad went from the Marquess of Dorset to the Duke of Suffolk, and he's thinking, wow, I could really deal with having more power in medieval England. You're good Tudor stock, we're good Tudor stock. Eh? Eh? As was the way at the time, it was very popular for the noble children to have a humanist education. And from the age of four years old, Jane had a tutor. Because of course her parents wanted to ensure that she had an education that made her a fit wife for a king. So Jane was speaking Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Italian. And she was clever, right? She was also very, very Protestant. Like they were all raised in the Protestant faith that was very much drilled into her from a young age. Like staunch Protestantism because king's Protestant, you're going to be fucking Protestant as well, right? That's just how it is. We, we've seen what happens on the other side of this. So along with all of the academics, which is what she preferred to do, sewing, dancing, music. She was also trained in hunting, you know, going on hunting parties because it was one of the pursuits of the era. And her upbringing, which, you know, is fairly typical of the time, was really fucking strict. Like, she couldn't do anything unless it was perfect. Like, everything she does has to be perfect. She has to walk perfectly. She has to play perfectly, dance perfectly, sit perfectly, speak perfectly. And if she doesn't, then she is emotionally and physically abused. Like, you know. There's like taunting and name calling and berating and then there's like pinching and nipping and of course beatings which again are very typical of the time. Effectively her parents treated her like shit like they really did and it's like one of the quotes I read about her was that they would dress her in rich silks but informed her that she would not go far on looks alone. So Jane, she's fair, but she's also... So Jane, she's relatively pale, but she's also got freckles. Probably from going out in all those hunting parties. But she's also got the Tudor hair, which is sandy red. Like, there's red, there's loads of redheads. You look at the Tudors, there's just fucking redheads everywhere. Ginger, ginger, ginger. Like, loads of fucking gingers all over the shop. And she's got sandy red hair. And she's often described as plain rather than pretty, which is, I feel is just like a really kind of a non-compliment. Oh, what is she like? Oh, she's plain. 
great. So she's not ugly, but she's not pretty either. I feel like, I don't know if that's the dip. You know what? You know what? She's probably like TV ugly. You know what I mean? Like there's pretty and then there's TV pretty and then there's TV ugly. Like I think she's probably TV ugly. So when Jane was in her teens, she gets moved to Henry VIII's courts and she becomes a lady in waiting to his final wife, Catherine Parr, who like Jane and her tutor and her dad and all them is a staunch Protestant. So, you know, very much reinforcing that in her. So when Henry VIII dies in 1547, Jane then moves to Chelsea Palace and continues being a lady in waiting for Catherine Parr. Not long after that, Catherine marries Thomas Seymour and loses basically all the rights she had as, you know, the king's widow. So Thomas Seymour, if you don't remember, is the brother of Jane Seymour and he is the current king's uncle. <sighs> Seymour, he is a sneaky, sleek out wee bastard, let me tell you. I fucking hate the man. He's slimy and he's creepy as fuck. And suddenly, Seymour, what does he do? He pays Jane's family a fuck ton of money to make Jane his ward and promises them she's going to be Queen of England. Because <sighs> the man cannot keep his grubby hands out of anything. Like, the man is power hungry to the point of stupidity. Like, he's the reason Queen Elizabeth had to fuck off. Like, the funniest part in all this is, like, Thomas Seymour had absolutely no fucking power whatsoever. Like, he had no cards in his deck. Because if he had just stayed an advisor to Catherine Parr, he would have had more power than by marrying her. But of course, he has to be a creepy motherfucker. So Thomas Seymour has no fucking power. He has no actual way of making this marriage happen. He's got nothing. And not only that, King Edward VI wasn't interested in Jane because she was, you know, just a regular lady of the court, he wanted to marry Mary Queen of Scots. Or, and I quote, a French princess well stuffed with money. When I mean, you gotta remember as well, Edward's what, nine, ten at this point? Like he's still a fucking child. And while he's, you know, a kid, like he is susceptible to all of the people around him. And also because he is in fact a child, he's not actually doing the governing of England, it's being done by the Duke of Somerset, which is Thomas's brother. Like, he was the smart one. Like, he was the smart one, right? So Somerset, he discovers the thinly veiled plot to marry Jane to Edward, and he's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and basically thwarts all plans for this, right? But even so, he's like, right, doesn't matter, you don't really have power anyway, so Jane is allowed to stay so she stays as a lady in waiting to Catherine Parr up until Catherine Parr dies in childbirth. And at 10 years old, Jane is the chief mourner for Catherine Parr. And she is genuinely, genuinely upset about her past. So after Catherine passes, you know, she goes home, but then Thomas wants her back. Thomas Seymour, he wanted to keep Jane as part of his household. So she goes back there and she's there for like oh, two months or so, up until the point where Thomas Seymour is arrested. After which she's sent back home. So when she returns home, she has to be good, meek, sober, and ready to obey her parents in all things. Cool, that's a really fun, warm homecoming. Not at all 
disturbing whatsoever. So obviously, Jane fucking hates being home. And the only time she's happy is when she's with her tutors because one, she likes learning. Like for learning's sake, it's something that she enjoys. And also it meant she didn't have to deal with her fucking arsehole family. Jane literally states that she is in hell, right? But because, you know, very strict, horrendous upbringings were perfectly normal in the Tudor era, she was probably just seen as like an arsehole teenager more than anything else. You know what I mean? So yeah, Thomas Seymour is executed and Jane's dad gets interrogated by the King's Council four times. Not good. And by the fourth one, he's like, hey, anyone want to marry my daughter? You can have her. You get a braid. You get a braid. You get a braid. So he's like offering Jane up to like the Lord protect her son. He's like, hey, Tudor blood, good match. And it though, hey, 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 hey. But like no betrothals happen at that point. So he's lucky to like stay out of trouble. Like, so no betrothals happen. Anyway, over the next few years, during uh, Edward VI, the reign, who is, you know, super duper Protestant because he's a fucking child and that's how things work. Jane Grey and Mary, Mary Tudor, they don't quite get along. Like there's this like rift between the two of them and it gets worse. So um, because Mary is so Catholic and Jane is so Protestant, it's like a sticking point for both of them. So like in 1551, Jane visits Mary. I feel like this is just a salty teenager thing. You know what I mean? So she says they're in the chapel and Mary is bowing to like the host, which is, if you're not Catholic, it's like a round piece of pressed bread, kind of like a, a wafer. And it's represented as the, the body of Christ, right? And you take it and it's communion, you eat it and swallow it and stuff. And because you consume Jesus for some reason. You think I'd remember, I don't. Anyway. So they're in the chapel and Mary bows to, you know, the host. And she's like, what are you doing that for? And Mary is like, well, I, I bow to him who made us all. You know, I bow to God. And, and, Jane, and Jane says, and I quote, how can he that made us all be there when the baker made him? And Mary's like, what the actual fuck? <laughs> because she's like, it's a symbolic representation of God. It's not a literal thing. And she's like, but that's not God because that's a baked bread good. Like she doesn't. So you can either take it as she doesn't quite grasp the concept or that she's just being a dick. Either way, I'm kind of okay with it. Like whatever. So Mary, she doesn't feel like Mary. <laughs> That being said, Mary doesn't really take it to heart because she thinks Jane's just been... She's been in the game a long time. And she sees that Jane is being pushed from pillar to post and that she's been raised a certain way. And so she thinks that she's more misguided than anything else as opposed to it being venomous, you know? So she, you know, she wants to keep it civil, keep it friendly. And so she sends, you know, Jane some gifts. She sends her gowns and jewels and stuff. And Jane gets them and straight up fucking refuses to wear them because she thinks they're just a bit too much. Um, that they're a little bit extra for her like she prefers to be dressed more plainly as a good protestant woman should so like quite a lot of the upbringing did rub off on her but still um it's not until 1553 so like what five years later where she's actually 
engaged to somebody. So in May 1553, she is betrothed to Lord Guildford Dudley, uh, one of the sons of John Dudley, the first Duke of Northumberland. So John Dudley is the Lord President of the King's Council, making him the most powerful man in the country. So by aligning themselves with that, they've put themselves in a prime position because Jane is but a useful pawn in a negotiating process for power. Fuck off. So in 1553, there's a triple wedding. You get a bride, you get a bride, you get a bride. So Jane marries Lord Guildford Dudley. Her sister Catherine marries Lord Herbert, heir to the Earl of Pembroke. And Catherine Dudley, Guildford's sister, marries Henry Hastings, the heir to the Earl of Huntingdon. Seems like a lot of uh, political play in this one wedding. I'm just... Cool. Cool, 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 cool. I mean, this is the era where marriages were arrangements, you know? Which, you know, juxtaposes the concept of the courtly love, um, which is something that Henry VIII was, like, super into, but whatevs. But, like, it's so funny that she married um, Lord Dudley because we don't ever refer to her like, it is so rare to have her referred to as Lady Dudley. Like, now she probably was, like, back then. But we're just like, nah, you're Jane Grey. Fuck him. <laughs> like, nah. So Edward VI, he's ruling England. And he's, like, super extra Protestant, right? He's like, Protestant, Protestant, Protestant. Because he's a fucking child and everything is extreme to children, so. So that same year, it is very clear that Edward is dying. So Lord Dudley, he is ruling the country in his stead. Oh, actually, yeah. Um, so this is where things come to a sort of difficult moment because Edward clearly dying, he's very sick. The last thing that Edward wanted was for England to end up in Catholic hands, right? So this is all because of the Third Succession Act. So um, it was in 1544 and it basically restored Henry VIII's daughters into the line of succession because they had been removed. They were still deemed illegitimate, mind you, but they had been added into the line of succession thanks to Catherine Parr. So this act didn't just do that, it also meant that Henry VIII could alter the succession by his, his written will and testament. And so in his will, it basically stated that, you know, his three children, Edward, then Mary, then Elizabeth, would be the direct line of succession to the throne. But not only that, but it also stated that if none of them had kids, if they had no descendants, that the throne would pass to the heirs of his younger sister, Mary. So, and who was in that direct line of succession? Jane. So Jane was basically added into the line of succession, but her mother wasn't, like, she was just bypassed completely. They were like, nope, not her. Jane's next in line after the three Tudor royals. And but he'd also like scrubbed out the possibility of his older sister Margaret's kids from claiming the English throne because they'd married Scottish nobility. He was like, nah, you stay over there. That's fine. So Edward VI, he is fucking dying. And he drafts a will because he knows fine well that the next person in line for the throne is his Catholic sister Mary. And that is the last fucking thing he wants. So initially, like, the draft of the will 
had been stated as the male descendants of Frances Brandon and her daughters, but um, Frances had no male descendants, so that's kind of a mid point. And he changes it to his Protestant cousin, Lady Jane, and her heirs male. So June 1553, he has fucking nailed down his Protestant legacy. He's bypassed his Catholic half-sister Mary. And Jane Grey is the next in line to the fucking throne. Bish bash bosh. So he personally supervises the copy of his will. And it's signed by like 102 people, like from the Privy Council, peers, bishops, judges, the whole shebang. It's passed in Parliament. And like the whole plan is to have it announced officially in Parliament in like um, like September. But Edward dies on the 6th of July. But his death isn't like officially announced for four days later. So the 10th of July is when his death is officially announced. However, on the 9th of July, Jane is brought to Sion House, is forced to accept the crown of England. She, so she arrives in this court. There's a whole fucking court waiting for her. And she's like, fucking not. Like, nope, nope, don't want any of this. She starts literally shaking with fright because she is becoming very aware of what the fuck is happening. Dudley leads her to the throne and informs her that Edward VI named her his heir. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And she is now going to be Queen of England. The entire room kneels in front of her. And she is so, like, overwhelmed. She faints. And no one thinks, oh, maybe we should help up this fainting woman who is now our fucking monarch. No. 
They just let her collapse in front of them. So she gets, she manages to come to and she stands up and she's like, shit. And very, very reluctantly accepts the crown. So she's standing there. She's what, 17, 16, 17 years old, standing in front of an entire court and tells them straight up that she has no right to the crown. The crown belongs to Mary. She is the rightful heir. This should not be coming to me. But again, she's a 17 year old girl. But again, she's a 16, 17 year old girl in a male dominated world being bullied and pushed and fucked around and she reluctantly has to accept it because she just fucking has to that's just how it is and she is mad she did not fucking want it so she's coerced into this situation right she's taken to the tower of london to await her crowning because here's the thing and so she is in the Tower of London waiting. She's just, um, but for the most part, but Lady Jane Grey is just, or Queen Jane Grey, I suppose, at this point. So over the next couple of days, so on the 10th of July, when it was like public knowledge that the king had passed, Jane is officially proclaimed Queen of England, France, and Ireland while she's chilling out in the Tower of London. So the way the custom goes is that between, you know, ascension and coronation, you're supposed to reside in the Tower of London. Between being announced the new monarch and, and having the official crown on your head, anointing, all that jazz. Like, you're supposed to stay in the Tower of London, which I think for a good while was the official residence, the royal residence of the Queen up until it became, you know, before it became like a wee prison all on its own, in it. All the while, remember as well that Jane is married to Guildford Dudley. And this is where I love this little bit of spite and petty. Because she's so indifferent to him. She doesn't give a fuck about him whatsoever. She's just not interested in his existence whatsoever. She does not name him king. Like, prince, king, nothing. She's like, right, not even going to deal with this. Doesn't acknowledge it or anything. And it's just, that part to me is pretty funny. So, so she's chilling out in the Tower of London and Mary, straight away, as soon as she learns of Edward's death, is like, I gotta go rally my troops. So when Northumberland was out, he's trying to like fucking capture Mary and stop this. She's out rallying her troops. And so he heads out to try and get her. So the letter comes and Mary declares herself queen. And the Privy Council, they actually switch from Lady Jane Grey to Mary Tudor. To Lady Mary. So while Northumberland's away, his absence is very well noted in the Privy Council and there's a coup d'etat and hence they switch sides. But here's the thing, for Mary it was pretty easy to rally support because the country knew who she was. Nobody had a fucking clue who Lady Jane Grey was. Like, there was just this random chick taking the throne, they were like, no. <laughs> And by law, Mary was the rightful heir. So they were like, mm, okay, not into this. So, so when the Privy Council changed their allegiance and Mary's proclaimed queen, Jane's just sitting having her supper. And her dad 
fucking runs in. Like, she's she's effectively alone at this point. She's like, like the counsellors aren't there. There's barely any servants. She's effectively alone. And her father fucking bounds in the door. Poof, 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 poof. Her father fucking legs it in the door. Poof, 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 poof. Tears down the royal canopy of estate, which is like hanging above her chair. And he's like, you are no longer queen. And she's like, all right, cool. So when he tells her that she's like not queen anymore, this teenage girl looks up at him and just asks, may I go home now? She doesn't want to be queen. She never wanted to be queen. She just wants to go. Her dad doesn't answer her. He doesn't give a response. He fucks off. Does he try and save her? Does he try and help her? No. He legs it and leaves her, leaves her to her fate, really. So not long after her dad buggers off, the guards come for her. So she gets moved from the palace. So she, obviously she's moved from the palace and they put her in the house of Master Partridge, the gentleman jailer. Like, as imprisonment goes, it wasn't too bad. Like, she was relatively comfortable. She was allowed like books to read and shit. She had all her meals with like the jailer and his family. Like it was pretty, it was all right. She was actually pretty content there. I mean, considering the situation she was in, she was quite all right, you know? So Mary at this point, she's wary of like Protestant plots against her, you know, cause she's, you know, the Catholic queen. And because Jane, although reluctantly had taken the throne, she was effectively guilty of treason. Like, and her whole plan was, so the, the plan for Jane was to keep her in the tower and keep her sort of locked up in a way up until the point that Mary had an heir. Because at that point, it'd be like, it's like, yeah, okay, once I've got a Catholic heir, you can just scurry off, we'll just let you, we won't announce it, we'll just, you can just go, it'll be fine. Bish, bash, bosh. So, but for public appearances, Jane and Guildford Dudley, they're put on trial for treason, um, they're sentenced, where they're sentenced to death because the punishment for treason is death. But like, it's supposed to be a formality where it's like, oh, we have to wait to the right day and they would just be held indefinitely up until it was time to just be free. And like the general consensus of the court at the time was that Jane was not gonna meet the executioner's acts. Like it wasn't gonna happen. So Mary, she's queen of England. She's restored the Catholic faith. She's got the heresy laws coming where she like, burns people for not accepting it like there's a, there's a there's a weird freedom of religion thing happening but it's which honestly is no harsher than any ruler before her apart from jane i suppose but jane wasn't really there long enough to that's not the point so so mary she wants to marry prince philip of spain but you know this is a time where it was more important to be english they didn't want a foreign prince ruling over them but the country, as a general rule, wasn't super keen on having a foreign prince rule over them. Enter Thomas Wyatt the Younger, which basically sealed Jane's fate. So the 1554 rebellion of Thomas Wyatt the Younger against the uh, against Queen Mary's marriage plan with Philip of Spain. Uh, well, it, it was a close call at one point, but, you know, as we know, they were crushed. And unfortunately for Jane... Her father and both his brothers were in. So because her dad and her uncles were in the rebellion, so which was bad enough because, you know, it's a threat to her. So the council, they're in this massive panic. Because, and so, but the council is in this massive panic at this point because 
Jane's dad and her uncles were part of the rebellion and her dad specifically was one of the rebel leaders. And yet again, because he just cannot stop fucking things up for everybody because he's so desperate to get his grubby fucking hands on power, which does not belong to him. Deep breath. He proclaims his daughter queen again. He's like, she's queen, she's queen. He gets crushed. Jane knows absolutely nothing about this. She's not involved in it. She's got nothing to do with it. The councillors are in a whole fucking tizzy. Not only that, it is made incredibly clear that Prince Philip of Spain is not going to return to England unless Lady Jane is removed. So Jane is sentenced to death because they have no other choice at this point. Because if the men in her life had just stopped fucking things up for her, she probably would have done all right. She would have been free. Like, just, like all they had to do was wait it out a little bit. Would have been grand. But no. Power hungry men are power hungry. What a surprise. Jane is informed that she's going to die, right? And she accepts it. She's 17. 17 years old. She's been put through hell. And Mary is actually really upset about this because she recognises the situation. Again, she's been about the bush. She knows what it's like. And she's like, okay, you know, one last sort of grasp at a straw, you know, in order to thwart the Protestant rebellion. And so Mary's like, okay, If Jane converts to Catholicism, that removes the Protestant threat and also means she doesn't have to get executed. So the Abbot of Westminster goes to visit Jane and informs her that, you know, if she recants her Protestant faith and converts to Catholicism, she might, you know, like, this is her chance to live. But Jane has been brought up to be staunchly Protestant. It is very important to her. Her faith means as much to her as it as Mary's does, you know? Jane denies this and states that she has no reason and she tells the abbot that she has no desire to prolong her life and that she's not gonna give up her God. And he is like really moved by this sort of like sincerity in her, the fact that she is so, the fact that she has faith and that she is that connected to it. He is moved by this and he asks her if he can accompany her to, well, to her death really. And, um, and she's like, okay, that's fine. On the 11th of February, 1554, Jane is ready to die. On the morning of the 11th of February, 1554, it is D-Day for Jane. A panel of matrons come to it. So, you know, she's due for the chopping block. And Guildford, her husband, he wanted to meet her and for her to like watch his death and stuff. And she was like, no thanks, I'm good. And so that morning, a panel of matrons, they come and they check her out. They examine her to make sure she's not pregnant. Like they're, they're, so at the time it would have been like the quickening, they're looking for like the bump. And this is kind of, I mean, it's just one more thing, which is like, like it's one last attempt at a get out of jail free card. And unfortunately, there she is. She has a completely vacant womb. I mean, that we know of, 
because they deemed it like from the quickening, which is like four months. I think it's the quickening. Was it quickening they called it? Basically, when you start to see the bump, you know, when there's a definite sort of indication of something growing within the womb. So, I mean, like, technically, she could have been pregnant, like, very early on, like, pre-morning sickness pregnant, depending on when the last time she actually spent the night with her husband. Anyway, not important. But, you know, for all effects and purposes, not pregnant. So, Jane, she puts on the black dress that she had worn to her trial, and she waits at the window and watches as her husband walks towards his death. She watches him, surrounded by guards, sobbing as he walks towards the plinth. And not long after, she watches the cart carry his bloody, decapitated corpse backwards. And then it's time. So Jane walks to the scaffold, arm in arm with her jailer, and she is her, like, nurse and ladies-in-waiting. Like, they're in tears. They're... They are crying behind her. They are just grief-stricken already. Like, they're just really massively upset and they cannot contain... And they cannot contain it, right? Waiting there is the abbot who promised to be there with her, which is nice. So Jane stands in front of the crowd and tells them that, by law, she has come to die. And that she was guilty because she took the throne, but that she was innocent because she didn't want it. She asks the abbot to join her in prayers, but he's too upset. He's, he's so upset, he cannot actually pray with her. So she recites her own prayers. And so the executioner, he tries to help her like undo her gown. And she's like, nope, <laughs> I'll do it myself, thanks. So gets herself ready, disro disrobes as much as the executioner kneels before her and apologises and asks for her forgiveness. She forgives him, obviously, because that's just Jane. So she sees the block and he gets her to stand in front of it and she's like, please tell me it's going to be quick. And so she's worried that it's not going to be fast and she's worried that she's not going to be knelt down in time before the axe comes down. So as per custom, Jane, Jane's eyes have to be covered. So she blindfolds herself but then can't actually find the block with her hands and she just starts panicking because she's grasping the air, she's desperate to find this block, she's trying to find, you know, and, and she knows now that death is coming. Like she can't see, she doesn't know what's happening, she doesn't know what it's going to feel like, all of those things going through your head, it's just, it's a fucking lot, really. So she's grabbing air, she can't grab the block and she like cries in panic, like, what shall I do? Where is it? And then somebody, we're not entirely sure who, manages to like guide her to the block. So as she lays there, her head on the block, Jane states, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Which is like the last words Jesus supposedly said. So she says that, and then, <laughs> axe comes down, lobs her head off in one, sort of one clean swoop, just right down, one slice, done. So the executioner lifts her head up, proclaims, behold the head of a traitor. Body, so Guildford, his body was removed pretty sharpish because, you know, Jane was next up on the chopping block. Like this is very much an ooh and also ick bit for me. The 17 year old girl's half naked body was left, was just left 
on the scaffold for fucking hours before she gets buried in the chapel. So like her and Guilford, they're buried on the north side of Tower Green. And like 11 days later, her dad is also beheaded um, on Tower Hill. And almost immediately, her mother gets remarried. She's like, okay, no, bye. She receives a full pardon from Mary, gets remarried. And like not only like lives through Mary's reign, but also sees Elizabeth ascend, but also sees Elizabeth ascend to the throne. So yeah, that is the story of Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. I mean, that's fucking tragic, whatever way you look at it. Like it's just awful. And um, you know what? But like what's funny as well is it's not just not funny, haha, but you know, Lady Jane's sisters also had quite tragic lives it's like a whole thing it's just one thing after another it's like so much tomfuckery like it's ridiculous i mean i think i'll probably cover their stories in some betty swords because fuck me it's so horrible the shit that all these women had to go through and were put through by shitty men so therein lies the story of lady jane gray the nine days queen so, what did we learn today? We learned that, historically, men are shit. And that sometimes words aren't worth the paper they're quilled on. I don't know, is quilled a word? I feel like quill is the... You know what I mean, written down. I was going to say printed on, but it would sound. And that Christian dogma really has a lot to fucking answer for. Kind of weird to me that nobody thought to mention that children are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. Nobody thought to throw that in there and be like, look, this is the Catholic way. But anyway, fuck it, fuck it. Just shit, they're all shit. <laughs> ah! Anywho, if you liked my telling of this story, feel free to rate and review me five stars. I've recently moved networks, so it actually really helps me now more so if you rate and review and say good things about me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, and other such areas where podcasts are ranked. Also, if you like share me on like socials like Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that, more interaction, it really, really fucking helps. It does does so much to help like promote this, which is good. Because I want to make more of this and I want to tell you more stories and I want to get more bitty sods going. There was like a wonderful review that somebody said was like, history, as it should be. And I'm like, thank you. I respect you. Like, I want to I wanna keep making stuff and I want to make more stuff. I don't want time to make more stuff, you know? But don't forget, you can follow me on the socials. You will either find me under Who Did What Now Pod, except where it's Who Did What Now PD. That being said, my personal Twitter is actually, so the po- is at History Harlot, and I regret nothing. So yes, you can always support me on social media if you want to send a tip. Tips are absolutely accepted through paypal.com slash Who Did What Now Pod. And it is recommendation time. Ba 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 ba. Reading. I am going to recommend The Dead Duke, The Secret Wife, and The Missing Corpse. It, it, um, it's one of those weird 
historical true crime things that just absolutely it was it took me a while to get my head around it um i really enjoyed it i love that i love that shit though so for listening i'm gonna recommend rebel robin surviving hawkins a stranger things podcast um it's if you like stranger things you might like it and for watching go see love and thunder like that's it love and thunder more taika just more taika and everything lots of taika very much into taika you deserve this treat yourself to fun also i heard that there's like a four hour version of the movie which is just like ridiculous silly jokes and stuff and i would absolutely watch that 100 percent, not a doubt and with that i shall say goodbye and i will chat to you next time adios au revoir avoid us end my friends bye-bye as a long-time foreign correspondent I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.